0: Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out, and enjoy the message. Nice to see your, your smiling faces, and even the ones that aren't smiling, it's still nice to see your face. You have to look at mine the whole time today, so I'm sorry about that. We'll work on that some point in the future. How many of you have been uh, following in any way, shape, or form the reports regarding the spread of this coronavirus? Yeah, I saw some hands shoot way up and others of you were like, what? You know, what is that? Okay, we're going to stay away from you, wash your hands, you know. Um, (laughs) That's my last funny thing. I'll attempt on that this morning. I don't want to make light of something that's serious. And so um, I have, uh, on many different levels, I've been following what's going on, trying to find um reputable reports versus what people say about reports that they're reading. And so, you know, following what the World Health Organization has put out, following what the C D C puts out. Um of course I'm getting ready to lead 17 of us on an airplane to Israel in a week. So I've also been I know we're excited about that. That well seventeen of us are excited, the rest of everybody's <laughs> jealous, but it's okay. Um so you know I've been curious and interested to make sure that um, as much as is reasonable there's precautions and that you know israel is taking this seriously which if you know anything about israel yes they take it very seriously and they've been uh, very proactive in making sure that they're taking all the precautionary measures but it can be scary stuff Um, you know i know they throw the word pandemic around i know that there's a number of cases now on the west coast where they're saying could have come through what's called community spread in other words you know, they, they didn't come in contact with anybody that was known to have been in an infected area. They just contracted the virus. And so, um, you know, you don't want to make too much or too little out of things like this. And you see people reacting on all different parts of the spectrum. You see the people who are in complete panic mode, right? They're wearing hazmat suits everywhere. And then you have people on the complete denial and apathy mode. I don't care. It'll just blow over. It's no big deal. I'll sneeze on whoever I want and slap high fives everywhere, Right. So you have, you have uh, things on every scale. You have complete denial and apathy. And on the other hand, you have overreaction and fear and terror. And, you know, where do we land on this as Christians? Well, we want to be wise. We want to be sober. We want to be vigilant. The Bible doesn't teach panic. It teaches preparation the whole way through. Um, thankfully, Jesus also tipped us off to let us know that in the last days, we should expect things like this. To happen in increasing frequency and in increasing um, the, the scale of these things and the enormity and, and what intensity yeah, there you go that's <laughs> me in words right um, I, I'm usually quantity over quality when it comes to words, so we'll go with intensity so just with that as a background, I know that's on our I know that's on a lot of our minds this morning. you know I also think as a husband and as a dad being away from my family for know, it was interesting. I have, you know, every time I go overseas without my family, I have to have these uncomfortable conversations with my wife about the just-in-case conversations, making sure that she knows here's where all the paperwork is and making sure we've gone over here are the numbers to call first, and this has been updated, and that's been updated, and, uh, you know, those are not pleasant conversations, but we're just going to have them because, you know, that's part of how I'm wired as a husband, as a dad. Just want to make sure that in the event that something would happen, you know, we had to also think through, listen, if my laptop and my iPad and all my electronics are with me, I can't just say, here's the code to my laptop. You can go in there. We actually need to have a paper trail of all these different things. And, and she says to me, her perspective and mine are different. I said, well, now, just in case there's any type of quarantine or something, while I'm overseas, I've done A, B, C, D, and E to make sure we're prepared. She goes, that oh, how relieved would you be to be overseas when I'm stuck at home with the boys? I'm like, you think of this totally different than I do. I don't think of it as a relief. I think of like feeling so helpless and wired as a protector and the provider. And here I am supposed to be protecting my family. And I'm overseas with 17 people at a resort on the beach. Like That's just not going to feel right to me. And we just view that mode differently. <laughs> um, but it got me to thinking as I read through these reports, I did notice in one of the reports that I read out of Vanderbilt University, one of the, I guess, on some level they're associated with some accelerated research around a vaccine. I don't know where all this is going. So I'm not reporting news, this is just what I read. And depending on the reports you read, I've heard, and you've probably heard even more accurately, I mean I've heard 12 to 18 months somewhere in there before a vaccine is developed and ready. And of course we're all thinking, how, why does it take so long as a non-medical person in the medical room? Why would it take so long to get a vaccine together? And of course, then you're like, well, even if they have one that they think is going to work. They have to test it and test it and test it and test it to be sure it's going to work. Then even after they're sure it's going to work, they have to produce enough of it to get everywhere. You go through all these different things and you're okay. An 18 month finish line. Here's my question. Let's suppose we fast forward to 12 months from now and you're on the team of two dozen people at Vanderbilt University and you discover the vaccine that is going to work and it is ready to go. Here's my question. There's a global interest. In this, this would be really fantastic breaking news to say, Aha, fear no more, we've got a vaccine. How long do you think it would take for that team of 24 people to get that news all over the world? How long do you think it would take? Okay, I hear not long. Would you measure it in minutes, hours, days, weeks? Minutes. Minutes, maybe. I mean, I'm sure there's some place. Now, why are we so confident to say we could get that message around the world in minutes? Media, fa- Facebook, right? It, bu- it funnels into this idea of technology, right? Now, suppose this were a 100 years ago. How long would it have taken? <laughs> I hear the groans, right? Longer. Now, they still had some technology, you know. But how would it have gotten around 100 years ago? You'd had what? What's that? Telegrams? 1920, right? They had telephones, right? Just would have taken a little longer. Suppose it were 1,000 years ago. Months. Years. Suppose it were 2,000 years ago. How long would it take to get a message from Vanderbilt University of the good news of a vaccine discovered around the world 2,000 years ago? Yeah, 1st yeah, they I'd have to create the universe again. Right. Uh, we don't even know, right? That is a dire situation to be in a situation where there is a pandemic. There is a virus that is spreading rapidly around the world. And a small group of a couple dozen people in a city in the USA have the vaccine. But they have no way of letting the rest of the world know the vaccine's been found. I know no other way to show you the situation the world was in in Acts chapter 8 than that analogy, okay? You have a group of a couple thousand Christians who have the news of a vaccine of sorts, okay? There has been a virus of sorts that has affected the entire world, and the entire world doesn't even know they're infected, and that virus is sin. And if you read the whole Bible as a story from the beginning to end, this is a critical part in the story, because what you have at the beginning is God created the world and it was good and he was together with everybody. And this is the way God always wanted it to be. There was beautiful, uninterrupted togetherness. But then the virus. So to speak. Man chose. Their own way of right and wrong over relationship with God. And as a result of that, man and God are now essentially quarantined from one another. And both parties want to be back together again. But God says, I can't be infected by that. And that's why he hates sin so much, because it is the virus that separates him. From those he loves dearly. And so there's this colossal problem at the beginning of the Bible that carries the tension through the Old Testament. And it says someone has to come and bring the vaccine. Someone has to do the vaccine. So the Old Testament points an arrow. They had kind of a get by in the meantime with the Old Covenant, but it points. To Jesus in the New Testament. Now we've studied this. We know that all of the Old Testament was pointing towards an ultimate deliverer in Jesus Christ. Who would come as the Messiah. And he would become the substitute. He would take upon himself the virus and the sickness. He would take it on him. He would pay the penalty. He would pay the price. And he would become the vaccine as it were. His life. His blood. We just celebrated it. And this, had, this part had been done. The vaccine had been done. Jesus did his part. He actually went to heaven and sat down. His part. Was done, and that is good news. The, the problem now is that that good news has to be spread and it has to be communicated. They do not have the technology we have, they do not even have this good news written down in written form. Understand, at this point in history, the New Testament writing does not exist. The whole world did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which are the historical accounts of of the of the actual news. They don't have it written down in print. All they have is oral tradition from reliable eyewitnesses, and it's all concentrated in one city. And you've got a dying world who doesn't even know they're dying and infected. And this is the situation history finds itself in in this chapter. I will tell you, if you had to get that news out from Vanderbilt University to the world. It's going to inconvenience some people. You've got 24 people that found this vaccine at Vanderbilt. They're going to somehow have to get that information from that laboratory to Australia, to Asia. You think some people are going to die along the way? Absolutely. You think some people are going to suffer. You think there's going to be some issues, some travel challenges, boats might sink. There's going to be, but wouldn't you say, in the grand scheme of things, that sacrifice is worth the greater good? And so you have this challenging passage in Acts where God looks down at the world and says, The good news exists. It is finished, but it's not been communicated. And the only people who are capable and ready and able to spread this news are all in one city and there are people lost and dying. I have to shake them out of this and get that word to spread or else that good news was almost done in vain because how can they be converted unless they hear? Hence, Acts chapter eight. Let's read together this morning how persecution helped spread the good news. Acts chapter eight, verse one. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Now, this is a jarring beginning to this little section. If you weren't with us the last couple of weeks, he witnessed the murder, the martyr of Stephen. This is the first public execution of a Christian in recorded in the New Testament. And we went through that in great detail last week. You can go catch up on it if you need to. But Luke is making the point that Saul, who would later be named Paul, was present. He was in agreement. He was an active support. He condoned it. He is here. He is physically witnessing the murder of another human being. And we've talked about last week. I don't know what that does psychologically to a person. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands this morning. And I know that there are many of you in the room who are much more educated than I am about these areas. But I just wonder, not having I've been in a room where people have died before as a pastor, but it's been a much different situation than what happened with Stephen. That did not affect me anywhere near psychologically like it would to witness the actual murder of a man in the prime of his life. Um, I don't know what that does to a person entirely. Let's continue reading. So a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles. Now, this is interesting. Up to this point, persecution has only been against the apostles. Now it's only against the non-apostles that are scattered. It's interesting. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered. Two Greek words for scattered. One of them means um, like you just wipe things off a table indiscriminately. The other one is the word you'd use for planting seed in a field the way farmers did. And this is the second of those two words. The connotation Luke is giving is that God's taking the believers like good seeds in his hands and sprinkling them all over the world through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Do those two regions sound familiar? Where do they go next? Judea and Samaria. You remember back Acts 1:8, and you will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, check. And in Judea, right, which is the region. Then Samaria, which represented the race they hated. Right? And then the uttermost parts of the earth. But up to chapter 8, they had gotten no further than Jerusalem. The good news was doing great things in that city, but the rest of the world was dying in complete ignorance of what the good news was. Uh, Interesting parentheses, some devout men, that meant Jewish men, interesting, came and buried Stephen with great mourning. I'll come back to that in a minute. He wasn't buried by believers. He was buried by devout Jews. Interesting stand they were taking against their leaders. Um, But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house. Listen, let this phrase sinking and dragging out both men and women. So now persecution extends not just to men, but this violence is extended to women at the hands of Saul. He throws them in prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus. Wherever they went, that's as far as we're going to read today. I just want to plant a couple seeds of thought in your mind. I may not answer all these questions to your satisfaction, but when I was. Before I started turning this into a sermon, I start with a Bible study and I try and let it speak to me. Here are the three of the seven or eight questions I wrote down in my journal about this passage. First bullet. What do you think about what you just read? Here's one. How was Saul able to look himself in the mirror that one day when he eventually realized how terribly wrong he was? You do realize there was a point later on in Saul's life where he recognized what he was doing here was sinful and wrong. How could he deal with that kind of guilt? How could he stomach the shame and the regret over his past actions when he'd eventually have to own up to himself for what he was doing in this section? Second bullet point. What do you think about what you just read? Was this violent persecution against Christians part of God's perfect will? Did he want this to happen? If the answer is yes, how could a good loving God let something like that go on? Or let's say it wasn't his perfect will. If not, why didn't the sovereign powerful God who can do anything, why didn't he put a stop to it? Have you heard a form of those questions before? Okay. Third bullet point. This this last verse never shocked me before. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. How were these Christians capable of sharing anything good in this haze of this kind of atrocity? I'm going to come back to this later. You and I are carriers of one kind of a news or another. Are you the voice of bad news or good news? If these people in these circumstances could carry good news, then you and I can too. You would think that on the tip of their tongue, everywhere they went, it would be bad news. Because of what they're going through, what their families and friends are going through, what's happening in Jerusalem against them. But that's not what Luke says they did. On the tip of their tongue was good news. Are there people who, when you see them coming, you think, oh, gosh, I hope they don't want to talk. They are not carriers of good news. They are, you know, Debbie and Darren Downer, right? Everything. You've seen the SNL sketches about about Debbie Downer. And they're just the eternal pessimists. And it's almost like there's certain people who just relish in having something bad to share. It's almost like that brings them some sadistic sense of joy if they have bad news. You know? It's a great challenge for us. Let's go back to verse one. I'm gonna give you three application statements. I'll give them all to you up front, and then we'll just talk through briefly what we just read. How did God look down at the world and say, here's how I can get the good news out of Jerusalem into the world? Three application statements I drew out of this. Maybe my feeble attempt to answer some of my own questions. First thing I see is your sin will make you sick. But forgiveness, recovery, and healing are available from Jesus. Your sin will make you sick. Well, Pastor, how do you get that out of this verse? Because Saul doesn't seem sick about his sin. He, number one, he doesn't even seem to think that what he's doing is wrong. He thinks what he's doing is right. He doesn't seem sick at all. I'm going to come back to that because in this particular instance, God and in his sovereignty allows us to Two reports later on in Saul's life, one written by Luke, one written by Saul himself, in which it is reported how Saul was dealing later on in life with what he does in chapter one. We actually find out from his own words and through his own pen how he felt about what he was doing here. And there's a message in that for us. Application number two. Don't despair. God is able. You might have heard this before. God is able to use things he does not approve of in order to accomplish purposes he designs. God is that good at what he does. What does he do? He, he, he's active in the role of being God. That's what he does. Job description, God. Okay. He is able to use things, even things he doesn't approve of. He's able to use them in order to further his purposes. Now, why is that important? Because if God is unable to somehow extract purpose out of all evil and atrocity, that means evil is more powerful than God. Because then all we have to have is evil or atrocity to handcuff God. God is more powerful. Remember, we read this back at Christmas time. A decree went out from who? Caesar Augustus for the whole world to be taxed. Now, why was that important? That was the only thing that God broke poor Joseph and Mary out of Beth, out of out of uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy that that's where Jesus had to be born. God used a morally corrupt, hateful, despicable guy and used that decree motivated by greed to fulfill his prophecies. Number three, Most people come to know Jesus through the words and stories of people just like you, not just from professional evangelists and pastors. The power of some of this story is that these people who went spreading the good news were not seminary trained preachers. They were accidental missionaries through no fault of their own. And what does it tell us? That God uses powerful words, transformed lives, and the real life indisputable stories of people like you to carry the good news to the lost. And if I asked all over this room this morning, many of you would say, I heard about Jesus or I found out about Jesus through a, through a normal person, through their story. Yes, pastors might have been part of the role or evangelists or whatever, but it might have been through a family member, a friend, a coworker, a sibling. It was that that really changed things for you. So let's go back to verse one and see where I came up with all this madness. Verse one, what's going on in verse one? It says, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. What do I see here? Saul is engaging in activities that later on in life he would deeply regret. In the last week, have you engaged in any activity that you think later on in life you're going to deeply regret? I hope not. it's probably true for a lot of us. And maybe you were engaging in those activities not even knowing or thinking that anything was wrong about what you were doing. And I know for some activities that are coming into your mind right now, you're thinking, well, if I did A, B, C, D, or E, murder, abuse, torture, rape, extortion, I would know that those things are wrong. OK, some of us would. What about some of the things you said about people? That you felt right saying them. Is it? Have you ever had a situation in your life where you thought back on what you said to somebody or about somebody and your heart just sunk? You said, man, what a lousy person I was to say that. To think that, to have that conversation. Paul was actively engaged in activities in chapter eight that later on in life he would regret. He was part of persecuting the church. He was part of persecuting men and women. The actual Greek word means it was though he was an, an animal tearing, a wild animal tearing into meat is the analogy, the metaphor, the Greek language includes here. He was actively involved in things he would later regret. Some people are reluctant persecutors, but not Saul. He was all in. He was not only persecuting Christians and being an instrument of violence, going door to door, not selling Pyrex or, you know, he was a guy, knock, 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 and he was dragging people, physically dragging women from their homes and their families, thinking what he did was righteous. But can I read to you? Two parts of the New Testament that shed some light on what happened. For those of you that may not know this story, we're going to get there in a couple weeks. Saul, shortly after this episode, has a powerful encounter with Jesus Christ. And he converts to Christianity. He repents from his sin. He accepts new life in Jesus. He turns lordship over to Christ and he becomes a powerful missionary. His testimony, his story, he was a polarizing figure because a lot of people doubted the authenticity and the credibility of his salvation because they were thinking, this guy, we know what this guy is all about. He's about killing Christians. Wouldn't it be just like him to pretend to be one of us? And then like the other shoe drops and it was a joke all along. And now all the rest of us are in trouble. So he had mixed results in being accepted by the Jerusalem church, which is why he was more successful overseas where they didn't know his reputation as much, even though he got chased. anywhere. There's a whole lot of history contained in the rest of the New Testament. But after his conversion. You get different parts in Paul's writing. Where he lets you in to what he wrestles with in his heart about his past. You have passages like Romans chapter seven that I've referred to a lot where he says, I recognize, you know, (laughs) like in an old proverb, there's two wolves inside of me. He's like, I recognize there's two appetites in me. There's part of me that knows what's right to do, but doesn't feel like doing it. And then there's a part of me that knows what's wrong to do and really wants to do that. And he says, how can I even be saved if I still have this appetite for stuff I shouldn't be doing? Then there's these two other passages He writes himself through his amanuensis in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes, I am the least of the apostles and am not even worthy to be called an apostle. Now, there's the end of the sentence. But what do you know? Didn't Paul spend a lot of time trying to convince people that he was an apostle? If you read through his writing, you think, well, well, why was that an issue? Well, Paul was not part of the original group of apostles who got to hang out with Jesus after his resurrection. He wasn't in the, he was on the team at that point. And what gave apostles authority was the fact that they could be tracked back to being with Jesus. They were not imposters. There's all kinds of phony apostles rising up. And so it was very important. It was like this was before LinkedIn, before you had a resume, before you had a degree or a certification. You didn't have a denomination's approval. You just had your credibility. And if you could say I was one of the apostles with Jesus, that put your credibility for teaching and leadership at the top. And Paul was always trying to say that I had a personal experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was trying to count that eyewitness encounter with Jesus as his apostolic authority. So most of his writings, he's trying to say, please don't discount me. I am an apostle. I am an apostle. And yet in this moment, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. Now, why is there insecurity? The end of the sentence says, because I persecuted with zeal the church of God. He thinks back to what we read about at the end of chapter seven and end of chapter eight. And later on in his ministry. There's a part of him. There's a part of him that says, I, I really am an apostle and Jesus doesn't want me to have doubt. That's why he appeared to me. But in the deep insecurities of his heart, the enemy was still saying, but I remember who you used to be. I remember your past. I don't care who you are today. I know what you used to be like. I know what you used to do. And you are not qualified to represent Jesus. Have you ever heard that whisper of the enemy in your life? Things are cruising along and he just reminds you, but I remember who you used to be. I remember what you did when you were a teen. I remember what you used to think when you were five. I was there when the train wrecked. I know. I see it. We see Paul, even in his own life, even in the midst of effective ministry, was still dealing with some regret and shame and guilt from an issue that he had already been forgiven for. But even more graphic is what we read in Acts chapter 26, verse 11. Luke writes down perhaps what Paul regretted the most. It says, and I punished them often in every synagogue, I compelled them. This is Paul speaking in the first person about the church. And I compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them, chasing them even to foreign cities. Even in this stage of his life. Paul still thinks back and he looks back and say, how could I have been so capable of those types of things? It was wrong, wrong, wrong. And I didn't realize it at the time. And you can see Paul wrestling with these things episodically. And it was like, now, what do you and I do with this? Because on the one hand, that doesn't sound hopeful to us. But I think Paul had to come to a place to learn what we wrote down here in our first application point. There's two hemispheres to understanding sin as a Christian. One is that you have to understand your sin will make you sick. Sometimes as Christians, we take grace too lightly and we dabble in sin thinking that, well, I can engage in this and behave this way. And all I have to do is take 10 seconds and ask for forgiveness and it'll be gone. The Bible makes it very clear that someday you will have to wrestle with the consequences of choices you make. And that is by design unpleasant and uncomfortable, and it can make you sick To the point of actually feeling physically ill. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with sin you've committed. It is absolutely unpleasant. It's horrible. Horrible. Pastor, why are you? It makes me not want to sin anymore. I don't want to be good. (laughs) Because you know what? None of us were thinking about the stomach ache when we were involved in the sin. The closest metaphor I can come up. And it's not a perfect one but I think it'll help you make sense out of this. Uh, about two summers ago, I started having really real difficulty with heartburn, GERD stuff, and I um, was trying to figure it out and you know, went to the doctor and talked with him, and he didn't think it was a big deal, but it was bad. Like I don't know if you've ever suffered it to the point where it keeps you up at night, you can't sleep, you have to sit upright in bed. Uh, actually, it was longer than that ago. It was, it was the summer after the tree fell in our house, and we're living in an apartment um, over in White Marsh. I remember... And, you know, in the in the rental furniture that we had, I'd have to s- prop my back up against the backboard. I can't sleep sitting up because that's just too uncomfortable but when I lay down like it just would burn all night long. So it was just miserable. When I went to the doctor, we got on a medicinal plane. And one thing he said, which was revolutionary to me, was do you eat spicy food? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, stop it. which was okay. I don't eat like blow your head off spicy, but one of the things I just like, one of my guilty pleasures, I like wing sauce and I like wings. Yeah, some of we just bonded, right? And um, I cut out everything else and I was like, okay, because this is terrible. I said, and ironically enough, between <laughs> Prilosec and cutting out spicy food, I started feeling better. Crazy stuff. Um, there's this problem though, is that I still like wings and wing sauce. And there would be times when the family would have wings with wing sauce, and I would be feeling great. And I'd think, well, maybe just a few wings. And then eight hours later, as I'm laying in bed, 40 wings in, and, you know, <laughs> you know wing sauce slathered all over my face, and I'm laying there, tears streaming down my face in terrible pain, getting no sympathy from my wife, Right. And I'm saying to myself, never again, never again. I will never eat wings again. Feeling like I feel nothing's horrible. Why did I ever do that? And then two weeks later, I start to feeling better. It's out of my system. And I'm like, well, maybe just a few wings here and there. I am never thinking about the pain I'm going to go through when I'm sloshing down a few wings. But sometimes even an hour later, I'm like, what have I done? In some way, sin works the same way. Once you put that in your system, even if you're not thinking that way at the time, I'm telling you at some point down the road, you're gonna deal with it and it's gonna make you sick. But I can't leave you there. The good news is that forgiveness and recovery and healing are available to you through Jesus. I want to tell you that guilt and regret and shame can be real things and they can be artificial things. They can be consequences of our sin that God helps us through. They can also be... I don't want to get too psychological in this. They can also be self-imposed devices you use to punish yourself to your own satisfaction. I will tell you, it is ineffective. There's no amount of punishment. You can dole out on yourself where you actually feel better. The punishment has already been doled out for what you did. It's been doled out on Jesus Christ on your behalf. And when you went to Jesus, you said, I am sorry for eating those wings. I regret it. I wish I could punish myself, but I know that's futile. Can you release forgiveness to me? The moment he releases forgiveness to you, you are forgiven. Now, listen to me. You are forgiven and any subsequent apologies you make to the Lord fall on deaf ears. You're referring to an incident that is now covered in Jesus's blood. When he turns back to that page and you you keep saying, God, I feel guilt again. I know I prayed, but I don't feel forgiven, so you must not have forgiven me. I asked you to forgive me. Please forgive me for that thing that I did. He's flipping back to the page and he's like, well, I'm on the page in the date. And maybe all I see is my son's blood all over that page. That's the fact of your forgiveness. But the enemy, all he can do at this point is try and convince you that you are somehow not forgiven by reminding you of that. Now, what do you say in those moments? Do you deny that it ever happened? Here's, I'm going to give you this tool I've given to you before. This is the thing that helped me through my recovery. Because I am that guy. I am the guy that in a season of my life fell hard and didn't see it as wrong when I was falling. But man, after I fell, it consumed me. And One of the statements is you say when these whispers come up, I remember what you did. You say, that's who I was, but that is not who I am. That did happen, that was in my past, but glory to God, I am not that person anymore. You understand the difference then between forgiveness, which happens in a moment, and healing and recovery are processes. We want those things to happen instantaneously. We can see in Paul's life, it was a progression. He was forgiven, being used powerfully in ministry, wrote most of the New Testament, and even at that time, this powerful guy, still at times in his moments of insecurity, wrestled with images of his past. And I think it's a powerful leveling of the playing field for us to see that you don't have to feel so alone. But understand, this is not an instrument God is using to remind you of how horrible you are. It's a tool the enemy uses through our flesh to derail us from being the men and women God wants us to be. So I want to encourage you, if you're stuck somewhere between forgiveness and recovery, will you rest in Jesus today? And can I remind you, if if. Whom the son sets free is free indeed. There's no conditions on that. He sets you free. If you've confessed your sin to him, he is faithful and he's just. He's forgiven you of your sin. He's cleansed you from your unrighteousness. But understand the enemy through people or through your own flesh likes to remind you of those days. And when those things come up. Don't let them be the whirlpool and the vortex that sucks you down. It's okay to own up and say, I'm feeling some regret and some remorse today. But I don't need new forgiveness. I need a better understanding of the forgiveness I've already received. And I need to look at this moment and say that is who I was. Those are facts. But I've vomited that out. I've done the autopsy. I've learned the best day in my therapy was after about the third month of them doing what they called an autopsy, where they made me go back through this whole season of sin. And I had to just talk through it It was awful, It was awful. And then the final day, Dr. Snook put a period, he folded the folder, he put in the file cabinet, he turned it, he locked it, he says, We've extracted every possible good thing from that, that we can. And I want you to know for the rest of your life, that's going to live under lock and key. And we don't have to talk about that anymore. He's like, it's like the dog who vomited it out of his mouth. Okay, now don't return to that. That's nasty. Go your way and sin no more. And that's where I was. And that and I see that here. We don't see the whole story fleshed out in the passage. But I wondered as somebody you it might be hard for you to relate to if you've I wish I had the story of somebody who says I never stumbled into that type of cyclical, absolute, just anti God behavior. We've all sinned, But some of us have gotten cycled very deep into it for long seasons of our life, longer than others. And there's something that is so empowering and inspiring to me about seeing this side of Saul's life and how he put words to it later and understand, listen, God is God can even use us while we're in recovery. God can use Paul was going through recovery and healing the whole way through the process. I cannot wait. We're hoping January 2021 we're going to have celebrate recovery. White Marsh and Echo HQ. We've got leadership together. We're starting to pull a team together, a Christian ministry for people who are stuck in hurts, habits and hang ups that can come and be part of this faith community and in an environment that is safe for them. Begin to get on track for their own recovery and find the people and the champions and the leaders around them. I'm telling you, White Marsh, every community needs this White Right, Marsh? We need this. Perry Hall, we need this. We, we need this type of avenue for people who are stuck somewhere in this. Many of whom may not even know about Christ and see him as an avenue to recovery. And so, uh, you know, I read this story and it's all about the front end of recovery today. But it's also a warning. Man, if you are involved in eating wings right now, stop now. Stop it. You are just kicking the can down the road, friend. You're also assuming you're going to have time to come to your senses. Okay. Let's continue on. Verse two. Even as Stephen is buried, persecution breaks out against all Christians, forcing them to do what previously they were reluctant to do, and that was get the gospel to Judea and Samaria. What's interesting is that up to this point, you see an escalation in the persecution between the Jewish religious leaders and the Christians. It starts a couple chapters earlier, and it's just what Peter and John two, two of the apostles. They get called before the leaders and they get off with a warning. And the warning was, stop it or else. And they say, just so you know, we're not going to stop it. We're going to obey God instead of you. Because we can't, in this case, we can't obey both. So we're going to prioritize God over you. So they go out, they keep preaching the gospel. People get saved. Then it escalates. They arrest Peter and John and all the apostles and throw them in prison. Angel breaks them out. And unbeknownst to the, to the, the Sanhedrin who's, you know, who's getting together the next day and calling for them out of the prison cells, they say, hey, you know, it's like, what is it? It's like the sound of music when they're like, hey, they're, they're gone. The family's gone. You know, the family von Trap. they're gone. You know, they go to look for them, and they are gonzo. They are out in the, they're out in the, in the second to, in Solomon's porch preaching. They bring him before them. And this time it's a warning and a skinning. All right. They, you know, they, it says they beat them, but the actual Greek word, they pull the skin off their backs. They leave, they pray, word spreads and the church continues to grow. Then they get Stephen, and this time the violence escalates, and once they turn to murder, it's like once, this is how sin works, once you cross this, there's this boundary, I and mean, once you cross that boundary, it's, I don't want to get too deep into the conversation I have with people about sex, but it's like once you, go, once you go outside God's boundaries in that type of a way, it's kind of like in your mind says, what's the point of even trying to, to rein it back, we're all in now. And that's what happens here. It's like they murder Steve, and then all of a sudden all this pent-up rage that for whatever reason they were restricting is now fully unleashed. And two things are, there's a bunch of things happen simultaneously. First one, it says everyone except the apostles were scattered, which is interesting. Up to this point, it had been really focused on the apostles. Now it's focused on all the believers. They're scattered We think run out of town with a sword, which is what it might have looked at with the naked eye. But in God's eye, because God sees this story in a whole different perspective than we do. God doesn't see this as bad. He sees this as good, which messes us up. But I'll just go there now. In the grand scheme of things, we're thinking, well, why is this so bad? Well, Stephen got martyred. In our eyes, bad thing. Young man died in the prime of life. In God's mind, finally, I get to be with Stephen. If Stephen's given a choice the day after his martyr, stay in heaven in Jesus' presence or go back and deal with the world, which would he pick? It's not bad for Stephen. We think, oh, this is a tragic. And it is. But there's another perspective to view this through the God lens. God also says, you know what? Any of these people who follow me, ultimately, they're good. I got them. And they're carrying the vaccine. To places that need it, that won't get it unless they get out of here. Pastor, that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. That's fair. But are you willing to believe in a God that's big enough to have a reason for things you can't come up with? Well, I only think that this is a good God if He can explain this to my satisfaction. Okay. Are you willing to have a God big enough and sovereign enough to do some things for good reasons you don't get a full debrief on? And if that's the case, then we can say, all right. At the same time, you can see some good coming out of this. A lot of good coming out of this. You're probably sitting here today as a result of good coming out of this. Oh, but it, it cost, it cost lives. Yes, it did. That's unfair of God. Only if it never cost him a life he took his only begotten son and cost his life he started this whole chain of events but where's jesus today where are all these saints today in fact you get the whole you know where does your soul go when you die I read the story of stephen it doesn't go into soul sleep you're in the presence you're in the presence of jesus the old heaven the new heaven uh, abraham's bosom it doesn't matter you're in the presence of jesus who cares what the street is called Who cares what the name? Trust me, when you get to heaven, the things you think you're going to care about, you're not going to care about Or Heaven's a ripoff. If you think heaven is just a more accelerated, accentuated version of the things you can have here now with enough money, it's a ripoff. They can't even describe the colors there. Just calm down. The people who saw it don't know how to describe it. It's that good. If you just think, well, it's going to have a mansion over the hilltop and have a nice pool, a buffet 24-7. You've just described the Disney cruise. Listen, it's... It. Let's major on what the Bible majors on. Make a minor on what the Bible might. It's fun to talk about. But the reality is in God's perspective. This was not entirely a season marred by tragedy. Pastor, that's insensitive. Well, tell that to the early Christians who left and could have been speaking tragedy all over the world. They were speaking good news. They were able to get there and they were living it. You see, God sees persecution This kind. He saw this season differently than we might because he has a lens we don't carry naturally. You have another interesting detail here. Stephen's body needs to be taken care of. And the Christians are being scattered. So, you know, like the Ananias and Sapphira youth group, you know, the the young men who came in and carried them out and buried them, they're, they're heading for the hills. Who comes out and buries Stephen? What's interesting is we see here that not every Jew in Jerusalem Hated Christians. You see, there were perhaps very many Jews. Who loved them. Who looked to them. And what one commentator said that I read about this is in these devout Jewish men. Com- you see, it was, it was actually forbidden in the Mishnah. For a body to be buried and grieved and even celebrated who was killed as a result of the execution from, from the council it was almost seen like a, 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 an insubordinate, rebellious reaction against the council to go mourn the body, of some, mourn the life of someone who they said should have been killed. So these devout men who are burying Stephen are taking the risk of saying, we're sympathetic to the people you just killed and we disagree with what you did. It was actually considered by one commentator who was more familiar with the Jewish culture than mine, an act of repentance to God on behalf of the people who killed him. So there's a very sobering, moment here that Luke records that they they buried Stephen with great mourning and they weren't even part of the church. That's the impact of this man's life. But what was really happening here is that up to this point, we see the Christians reluctant to take the vaccine of the good news to the world. And now they start doing what they were reluctant to do and fulfilling Jesus's command to them. And in so doing, they're just inviting even more power to the power of the spirit upon them. Because, you know, he says, I'm going to go with you even to the ends of the earth. So somewhere, somehow the, the most critical detail to the story to me that I had never seen before is this idea that these people who are being scattered go with good news. That's not normally the way you would think that people being driven from their homes by force, that's not normally you think the story they would be telling. And now you have essentially refugees. Leaving their homeland. Having to pick up everything that they have, where their connections are and go find a safer place to live and restart everything. And it's just got their whole worldview. But the priority to them is no matter where God sends me, for whatever reason, he is sending me and he is sending me with good news. And it was powerful and effective. You look back at Stephen's life, and you might say, "What a waste! No one even gets converted at his best sermon." But the seeds, you know, there, there's a statement that's made by several theologians that the seeds of the, go- the the blood of the martyrs have often become the seeds of the gospel, and you see that instrumental. Stephen's life, even posthumously, has an enormous impact on Saul's life. And look how many people's lives he impacted. And in God's perspective. One life for many lives, you and I like that God likes that math. Let me can I convince you that you like the exchange of one life for many lives? You're okay with Jesus' death on the cross for your life, right? And you see, Stephen became part of that. Stephen gave his life. And many other lives were impacted through his life and through his death. Paul, what does Paul say? Whether I live I, if I live, I live for the Lord. And if I die, I die for the Lord. And Stephen lived for God, and he died for the Lord. And so much so that we see, uh, you know, get down to the end here, we see these accidental missionaries birthed and sent out. I don't know that on the morning of Stephen's arrest and trial that any of these thousands of Christians got up that day saying, you know what, we're... Uh, Let's sell the family business and let's pack up the tents and the camels and let's hit the evangelism trail. Let's do tent crusades all over the Mideast. Let's go to Greece. I hear they have great food. Let's go to Italy. They have even better food. You know, let's, all this. They wouldn't go to Italy today because they're quarantined. But they'd go to other places. Nobody got up that morning thinking we're going to go leave for the mission field. But you know what? That was how God orchestrated their lives. Did God cause the persecution or did he allow the persecution? At the end of the day, I don't know that answering either of those questions changes the end of the story. Does God enjoy or employ evil people to go around? Does God motivate evil? No. Does God inspire evil? Does he whisper in people's ears, go kill Stephen? No. But The beautiful thing about the Lord is that he's able to redeem even horrible things like the murder of a believer. But he's able to leverage that situation. You know, Genesis 50, 20, what people intended for for harm. God was able to redeem and use for good. The end of the whole story for Joseph. Joseph's life was we talked about Joseph last week. won't you know, but you see that theme again here in Acts. You see, you know, the enemy intended to use this to squash out Christianity. But what God shows the gospel is unstoppable. The gospel's unstoppable. And God was able to to use this moment to get the gospel to spread all over All over the world. Most people come to know Jesus. Through the words and stories of people just like you, so let me ask you. Whether you like to think of yourself as this or not, you are. You are a (laughs) spreader of news. You carry news to people, you carry information, you carry content. Are you a spreader of good news? Bad news or news nobody cares about. Well, pastor, you don't understand my life. If you understood my life, you'd understand why the color of my life is going to come out my words. I am incapable of sharing anything good about Jesus with anybody. Friend, if anybody has a case to build on that, I want to minimize your situation. But the people in this story had much had a pretty serious grounds to be ambassadors of gloom and doom. They had, it was factual. What they saw, what they heard, what they experienced, the uncertainty. I mean, they literally had to flee. This was way before prepping for disasters was like a thing. People didn't have, you know, bug out packs in their basement. They didn't have two weeks of of water and food stored up ready to hop in their car and run to their shelter in West Virginia and ride out the wave. If anybody at any time would have had uh, an, an understandable reason to go around with gloom and doom, it would have been these people. But they went everywhere speaking the good news. If you're incapable of doing that today, there's probably a number of reasons why. But my question to you, I don't know that I can fix it at this point. Even if you're not a spreader of good news, here's the best question. Do you want to be? No, I don't really. OK, there's not a lot I can do for you at this point. That's an act of the Holy Spirit on your heart. You've accepted a set of circumstances that God doesn't want you to settle for. And now you're using them as an excuse to not be the one God's called you to be. But Maybe there's some of us that say, you know what? Yeah, I, I want to be the type of person who is ready, willing and able to be a disseminator of good news, regardless of how I woke up this morning. That's a place I want to live. That's the place I want to be because in every one of my life seasons, there's a different voice I can bring to people. How powerful for someone to say, you don't speak our language. How'd you show up in town? Well, we had to we had to flee our homeland. Well, why? Well, because we follow Jesus Christ and when faced with the choice of following, you know, walking away from Jesus or fleeing for our lives. We decided to flee for our lives. What in the world would possess a person to do that? Well, let me tell you. You understand how even in their pain, that drew a captivating audience for people to want to know what type of belief system do you have that can make your face look like your face looks in spite of the way you woke up this morning. The Christian life is attractive. It's attractive. And the people that watch you, they know what's going on in your life. And when we respond to what's going on in our lives a little bit differently than the world does, people want to know why. Now you've got a ready-made opportunity to be an accidentally on-purpose missionary, just like they were. Let me pray over you this morning. I want to give anybody who would like to have the opportunity to have a relationship with God this moment, this morning. The common thread through all the believers who were scattered in Acts is that they had a relationship with God through Jesus. They admitted that they lived in sin (laughs) They recognized that Jesus was the only true vaccine isn't the best word. Let me use. he was the only true solution. For their sin. Because he paid their penalty. They recognize even if we wanted to pay off our debt to God, our wallet isn't big enough. Our life isn't great enough. Even if we wanted to, it's an insurmountable debt. And they recognize their only hope was in Jesus to trust that he was everything he said he was and that the payment he made for their death and uh, for their debt actually happened. And they put their hope and their faith in him. They put their hope and their faith in the historic fact of his resurrection from the dead. And they were brought a great deal of peace and purpose knowing that he he was raised from the dead and given a new life. And he said that anybody who followed him will experience the same. And so they said, listen, anybody who predicts their own death and resurrection and carries it out, he's worth following. And they experienced not only hope for their future, but a transformed life. So many of the people in this room have experienced the same thing. And if you recognize that's what you've been looking for the whole way along. Here's your opportunity this morning. I want to lead you in a prayer that if you would like to have a relationship with God through Jesus, this is a simple prayer you can pray. It's built around the letters A, B, and C. Admitting, believing, choosing. Admitting our sinfulness, believing in Jesus Christ, choosing him to be our Lord. I'm going to lead you in that prayer. Jesus, I admit I've sinned. And it's made me sick. And I need forgiveness. I need to be saved. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you're God's son. I believe you lived a life much different from mine. You lived a sinless life. I should have done that, but I haven't. You died on the cross. You accepted a death penalty. You didn't deserve that. I do. But when you went on the cross, I do believe you were my substitute. You stood in for me, so I don't have to. I also believe you rose from the dead. And because of that, I can have confidence that God accepted your payment on my behalf. And I can have hope. That when this body dies, I'll get a new one just like yours and I'll be with you forever in heaven. I accept forgiveness over my life. I accept the cleaning up of my heart and my hands. I invite you to come and live inside of me through your Holy Spirit. And I choose you as my Lord. You are my ultimate leader. I'm going to live life your way. Not by mine anymore. Thank you for coming into my life. In your name I pray. Let me pray over my whole church family. today, Heavenly Father, I volunteer myself again. To be more active and sharing good news. And God, I want to be able to do that. With more confidence, with more awareness, with more patience. Than I ever have before. And I even want to be do it, I want to be able to do that regardless of the circumstances of my life at that moment. That I'm never too busy, too anxious, too tired, too task-oriented, too focused, too grumpy, too much heartburn, whatever it is. Lord, I, I sense that all over this room there are many people who are re-upping our commitment. To being carriers of the good news. I know that there's more in this room. Uh, some in the room would say, I, I'm not interested. That's not me. Others say I want to be better. Uh, that's not me, but I want to be better. But there are plenty of people I know from experience in the fruit of their life. There are many of these people that are already active sharing the good news. God, help us not to be content or complacent. Sharpen us. Use us. Let us uh, let us really, truly be an appealing fragrance of Jesus that draws the world to you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through this study of Acts. I pray it continues to speak to our hearts throughout the course of this week and that the seeds that went into our hearts today uh, will mature into great fruit in our life. In your precious name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.